0: Welcome to FASD HOPE, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 20 years of lived experience. FASD HOPE provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD HOPE, Natalie Beckione. Welcome to today's episode. Thanks for joining us today. It's November, National Adoption Awareness Month. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Andrew Bridge. Andrew Bridge's debut memoir, Hope's Boy, was a New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestseller. The Washington Post named Hope's Boy one of its best books of the year with review that called it filled with vivid scenes and empathetic description, compulsively readable. Leaving foster care at 18, Andrew attended Wesleyan University, then graduated from Harvard Law School, and was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship. He began his legal career representing children in mental facilities across Alabama. His work enforced children's constitutional right to be free from staff abuse and to receive meaningful psychiatric care. Andrew returned home to Los Angeles as the CEO of the Alliance for Children's Rights. He defended children at McLaren Hall, where he was once confined. He won the right for Los Angeles' 60,000 foster children to speak publicly about their treatment. He investigated the excessive removal of African-American babies from their parents, which led to one of the first government initiatives to stop that. Andrew is the co-founder of National Adoption Day. He went on to lead one of California's largest recruiters of foster and adoptive parents. Called to address the unjustified placement of foster children in mental institutions, Andrew has served as a senior advisor to the state of Illinois. His educational work resulted in the creation of New Village Girls Academy, California's first all-girls high school for parenting teens. He serves on Arizona's Foster Care Review Board, and he consults with Child Welfare Systems and Foundations. I'm honored to be speaking with Andrew Bridge today. Welcome to FASD Hope. It is November. November is National Adoption Month, and I am honored to be speaking with one of the co-founders of National Adoption Day. He has a list of credentials. He is an amazing human being. His book is titled Hope's Boy, a memoir. Amazing New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestseller. He carries so many titles and and so many credentials, but most importantly, he's just an amazing man who's been through an amazing journey and on the other side of it, helping hundreds of thousands, if not millions of kids and teens and young adults in foster care. Today, I am so thankful to be speaking with Andrew Bridge. Andrew, welcome to FASD Hope.
1: Well, thank you. That is such a kind introduction. Thank you so much. And and I'm so glad that we've connected. Thank you very much. This This is really, really exciting.
0: Me too. And before we get talking, just to let everybody know, this summer I was reading, Andrew and I became acquainted, I think it was through LinkedIn, um, and we became acquainted and I bought his book and I said, hey, I would really love to have you on FASD Hope. And we booked an episode and I read his book and I would just (laughs) literally like, you know, we're on different time zones, but you know, midnight my time, I was just messaging him going, Andrew, I just, this, this book is just blowing my mind. It's just so your journey is just so important and I'm so thankful, you know, and you were so kind. You're like, thank you, Natalie, you know, and I must've, I must've seemed like I was kind of like, you know, geeking out because I, you know, I just, the more you read Andrew's book, the more you appreciate, again, I always say the voices of those who have lived through this journey to me are the most important voices because those are the voices that we can learn from. So um, Andrew has gone just beyond above and beyond that in, in everything, not only in his lived experience, but then in, in his professional experience. So again, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, get to our conversation. Andrew, for those listeners who are not aware of your amazing journey, um, your advocacy work, and the work that you do in both child welfare and in foster care and adoption communities, can you please share some of your journey with our listeners?
1: Yes, thank you. Um, well, I uh, I'll just start with my family, um, where I think a lot of us start. Uh, my family um, was very very poor. Cool. I'm the first graduate of high school on both sides of my family, both my mom and my dad. Um, they're both. Um, or were both, Uh, my mom recently passed, Um, Midwesterners, one from Colorado and the other from South Dakota. My parents separated when I was quite young. Um, My dad really effectively abandoned my mom. And um, I was living with my grandmother for quite some time. My parents were arrested. My mom had um, severe mental illness. Uh, She was released from prison. and, And I went from Chicago to live with her in Los Angeles. And I was, uh, I guess, just about halfway through uh, kindergarten. And around the oh, oh start of first grade, mid-first grade, my mom uh, was on her own. She was involved in beauty school. And uh, she develop, developed uh, paranoid um, That is, a for anyone who knows, has a family member, a friend, someone they care about, a neighbor, um it's a it's a it is a vicious vicious disease and uh and it took my mom from me. it took um in two ways um it it took her as a person and, and, and as a mom in many ways not entirely she still through that made it clear that she loved me and I never ever ever doubted that um but it also meant that I was physically taken from her so I was um uh, a week before my seventh birthday, I was um, yanked from her arms by a sheriff's deputy and a social worker in North Hollywood, California, and I was placed in Los Angeles County, Uh I was first placed in, a place, in, a, in an institutional facility called McLaren Hall. McLaren was a very, very big institution, over 300 kids on the outskirts of Los Angeles run by the Department of Probation. Um, a very frightening place, uh, was um, surrounded by barbed wire and literally floodlights at night, was staffed by security guards. Um, and I stayed there for uh, about eight months and then went to an individual foster home. Um, my mom never really got the supports that she needed and so i stayed in foster care until i was 18 and after i was after 18 i I was fortunate to get a cop got a scholarship to college and then uh i went on to law school and then after that first represented children in psychiatric facilities in the state of alabama um and then went on to lead a uh, a legal services organization that represents kids and foster care and kids with disabilities and that sort of thing.
0: So that, that would be it. <laughs> so amazing journey. Again, we're in, in your book. I highly, highly recommend Hope's Boy. Um First of all, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. It's so important. And I think especially this month in November, when we recognize national adoption day, which you co-founded and national adoption month, um, you know, your journey is just so incredibly important. Um, I'm going to start with one thing that really, uh, before we start talking specifically about your book. So the first thing you said, and you just repeated it, you know, and sharing your, your journey. McLaren Hall is run, was run by the Department of Probation. It was basically, and you described it um, so, so amazingly accurate as it, it was basically like a prison you know it was basically set up as a prison run run as a prison and you share how incredibly afraid and and how incredibly just vulnerable kids who are being taken from their homes go to McLaren Hall and it's basically like you're being punished for in so many ways for something that you know, again, was was of no fault of yours, and I, I seriously think that the work you, for, through your lived experience, the work that you've done, has had this ripple effect of recognizing. Okay, we need to make <laughs> we need to make facilities like this. Just no, it can it cannot be like that. That was like one of my first takeaways in reading in reading, um, Hope's Boy. Um, well, you
1: know, I guess I'm, I'm, that makes me very happy. It really does. McLaren it took them another it took Los Angeles. Them, I'll be specific. It took the county another forty years to close. Um, the supervisor where McLaren resided, I you know, refused to even allow a children on site children's ombudsman on site uh they they these, this was a group of five people who knew very well they oversaw the department for children family services they knew exactly what was going on they knew it was a violent place they knew they couldn't control it and they knew what it was also what it what would it become and that was it went from a shelter care facility which was a place which served initially kids like me frightened kids like me um to essentially a a, a massive dumping room so you, if you had a child who had really any kind of, of of special need. And I you know, that went the swath from a kid who was naturally depressed, mm-hmm. sad in mourning for having lost their family, to a child who had FASD, to mm-hmm. a child with an illness. That was where that kid ended up because that county took or we do this all across the country, we mm-hmm. take those children from their parents We promise in doing that that we will be a proper parent, and we're not, and we don't provide.
0: And this is one of the many reasons why I wanted to have you on FASD Hope, Andrew, because again, and something so many of our guests have repeated is that you don't punish trauma. You don't discipline a disability. And so many, we know the disproportionate amount of kids, teens, youth in foster care have All of they check so many of those boxes. So, right off the bat, you know, when that happened to you, when you went to McLaren Hall and when you shared, you know, you you were able to just so vividly share so many of your experiences while you were there. um, It, it, it again, it just screams and we were talking about this before we started recording, it just screams systemic overhaul, you know, it just screams. And, and, and thinking about this too, I mean, because your book actually opens with your advocacy work in Alabama and it was almost full circle. You, you know, you're, I'm not going to share too much of the book. You need to buy it. You need to read it, but you talk about how your encounter with, with a young man who was, um, in one of the facilities and actually in one of the most notorious wings of the facility, his civil rights were being so horribly abused because um, of of the way that facility was run. And in speaking with foster care advocates around the world, it it doesn't, you know, unfortunately, this is something that just still has not, been addressed, you know. Um, so I think it's so important that people who have either lived through the experience or who are able to not only live through the experience but then you know come out and advocate because you know what's happening. Um, it, it's just so important to me. Um, again, I, I'm gonna ramble just because I'm just so thankful for not only you writing this book but the work that you've done.
1: I think I just want to say, you know, the thing that was amazing in that experience for me was sitting down with those kids and, you know, now, now I'm a grown-up, graduated exactly. from law school, And I'm sitting down with kids, you know, that, that were like the kids that I, that I grew up in foster care. And it was, you know, I was quite young and it was, I was just starting out as a lawyer, but what surprised me was they were feeling exactly the same things that I had felt as a boy. And, and it was, there were a lot of things, but, but. The one that was just overwhelming was just, my gosh, how could this have happened? Why did this happen to me? And the taking on of responsibility that 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 wasn't their responsibility, um, and things that just the the failure to, to provide for them in any in any compassion, any kind way. So we yes. can do a lot better.
0: Oh yes oh my goodness yes and and not just this month in november it it every month every day we can do so much better um so i'm going to i'm actually going to start the interview now so uh sure. because i know that um I, I just have so many questions for you um not just in reading your book um but just through the amazing am- amount of advocacy that you're doing so let's talk about when in your life, did you d- decide that your your story needed to be published and your your book needed to be written? Because you, in between, you've done so much, you know, with your um, advocacy work, with your legal work, with your um, your justice work. Essentially, when did you realize, okay, this book, I need to write this book and 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 just get it out there so that as many people. As possible can understand what this journey is like
1: you know um well for a long time i i i never talked about having grown up in foster care and then eventually i did talk a little bit about growing up in foster care but um one of the things i never did was even after law school never talked about my mom never ever uttered the word you know, Hope, which was my mom's first name. And so um, the motivation in writing the book certainly had a lot to do with my work and and a lot of my, my, you know, the way I grew up and remembering those kids in foster care and remembering what had happened to my mom, Hope, and what had happened to me. But it really also was about um, how I, I really was her boy and that was never going to change um and you know she passed away uh actually last mother's day um and you know um, i'm a grown man but I'm, but i'm still i'm still a boy and it was it was really about i suppose in a larger sense hoping that people would understand that parents of children in foster care overwhelmingly love their children, they're overwhelmingly in foster care because of poverty, because they're poor, and because they haven't been given the opportunities that they need. And if we could do anything to to get beyond what is too often portrayed as a a family that is involved in the foster care system and getting towards something that's more positive and affirming about that family, that talks more about what that family's been through as a group. Um, that's really what hopes was all about. Um, yes. My mom did not need to go through what she did. And, and I certainly didn't need to go through what I did. So
0: yes. And so many times in reading your book, you you expressed that, um, just, it was so emotional to read how this profound love that you had for her, even though you went through this, this journey that never changed. And you ultimately knew that, you know, how she loved you never changed. And I think I think it also really, in sharing your story, um, it really communicates, like you said, how the foster care system really is just not doing, honestly not doing anything for the family. You know, the ultimate, we know, having gone through the MAPS training a long time ago, we know that the ultimate goal of foster care is reunification. Um, however, there's really it's it's really left up to the 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 birth parents, the biological parents, and okay, well, this is what you have to do. And like you said, so so many of those parents don't have the resources, they don't have the supports, they don't have the, the funds. Many of them we know have disabilities or or diagnoses themselves, so they may not even understand what they have to do to reach it, you know? Um, So you really just put such an emotional story behind the need to support families in foster care. Children, absolutely, and especially their parents, their caregivers, their loved ones. So again, I'm just... I, I'm just going to keep saying this. I'm so thankful that you shared this in in your book. In your book, you talk through your own experiences about, and and this is something we talked about again before we started recording. How punitive the child welfare system is towards children and youth in foster care that they're supposed to be they're supposed to be supported, they're supposed to be protected. Can you share with us when you were in the system? how that was and how it's changed but we both know how far it needs to go. Let's talk about that whole this is still considered punitive when in no way shape or form there should be nothing punitive about foster care.
1: Well, I think that's exactly it and that's that is um kind of the the kernel of the problem if you will and that is um to place the blame on the child. Um, And so, you know, um, one of my uh, best examples that I can think of to give that is, is a child fails their placement. That child did not fail their placement, I'm sorry. Um, If we could just think for a moment and remember that we're talking about a six, seven, eight, I don't care if we're talking about an 18 year old, that is a child and that, that child did not fail their placement. We failed. The system failed to help that child. And, you know, I, in terms of its punitive nature, um, what I can say is, you know, a kid who doesn't grow up in foster care, who isn't in foster care, um, very rarely, you know, are, th- are they going to be at risk of losing their home for messing up and the intolerance for kids that mess up, regardless of the reason, and, um, and the unwillingness to really take a look at ourselves. You know, um, when you look at a, a case and, um, and you see a child, and I've seen these, I said, you know, in reviewing children's cases, you see a child that's gone through six, seven, eight, nine, more placements. Why is we don't stop and say, take a minute, stop. This isn't working. We're not doing our job. And it's that discomfort in ourselves, in our own ability to say, you know what, we've messed up. It's not the kid. It's not the mom. It's not the dad. We messed up and we're not doing this right. And that's what really needs us to be changing. As we were talking about before we we got online here, you know, uh, it really, it has to do just with kindness. It's, you know, it is never too late to be kind. And never too late to sit back and say, what, what can we do? So
0: I love that. I love that. It is never too late to be kind. And I'm going to go mama bear uh, now, Andrew, because something in many things in your book really struck a chord with me, you know, as the mom of, of, Two two children, um, particularly of of a son um, who has has an FASD. We're talking about um, again. I'm not going to give too much of it away. I want I want listeners to buy this book and read it and and read it again. You, you shared about the notorious B mod unit when you first became a, an attorney and first started representing children and youth in I believe it was in in Alabama, and. Something that struck a nerve with me, um, and I actually cried during this, was, you know, you you go back to this a couple of times in your book, how these children and teens, they were they were taken out of their homes for abuse or su- suspected abuse or su- su- suspected neglect. Yet in this particular unit, in many units, but, you know, you give this example of, of BMOD, they were being neglected and abused even more so. There, It was like just layer upon layer of trauma. And what they were in for could very well have been, because we know, again, this disproportionate number, what they were in for was perhaps not being able to follow a direction or a rule because they could not, you know, either their brain could not or or something in them w- was not able to to follow the rules or the guidelines. So therefore they were placed in this horrible situation. You and I both know that abuse and neglect of those kids only exacerbates the prenatal trauma, the the prenatal exposure to to alcohol, to drugs. So again, thinking about you sharing your interaction with that young man in BMOD and and your work, where do we start? I, Obviously, we started looking, and I love what you said, we look at ourselves, we look at how these kids, these youths, these teens, these young adults, they're not, they're not failing, we're failing them. Where, how do we start? Because I know there are listeners who they're on, I like to say they're on the edge of advocacy. They want to yeah. advocate. It's just, they, they just need that push. Thinking about that, how do we start?
1: So I just I just want, so the, the, the place that we're talking about for people that are listening and watching, was called the Eufaula Adolescent Center, and it was the largest mental facility for children in the state of Alabama. It was located in the town of Eufaula, which is in southeast Alabama, very rural area, also happens to be an area where a lot of very powerful people in the Alabama state government come from, and so it was where a big facility got put because that meant jobs. Very simple. It meant a big facility with lots of employees and lots of jobs. The thing that is ironic, I think, to our conversation is that most of those kids, those were not kids in the foster care system. Some of them were. But overwhelmingly, those kids were sent there voluntarily by their parents. And it's because the state advertised this facility as a state-of-the-art state mental health facility that would help them. So, you know, these are, these are kids where, you know, you've got a family and they, they've tried everything, right? They've tried counseling. They've gone to the pediatrician. They've gone to, they, they've gone to church. They've tried absolutely everything and they don't know what to do. And in this case, what they did is they, they believed. They believed a promise that was made to them by the state of Alabama, by the Department of Mental Health. And that was if you give us your child, Six weeks will make him or her better. They trusted that, and, and what they found out is once they turned their child over to the state, the state wouldn't give back. So you, you you couldn't get your child back out because the moment you tried to, the state would move into local courts and have the child placed there permanently. So BMOD, to go to the, the, the example of what trauma does to trauma, Yes. BMOD was a series of basement rooms in the boys dormitory. So these were underground rooms. This was an old radar facility, Air Force radar facility, mm-hmm. I think way back, uh, Cold War, and, and we're keeping our eyes on, on, on Cuba. That's exactly what this part this was. It was part of the, that installation of military bases. So think of a military base. It was a massive piece of property. And in the old dorm- dormitories, they now kept children. And in the basement of the boys dormitory was Bemont. Bemont stood for behavioral modification. Now, when you walked into Bemont, you found out it was completely dark, walked in there, completely dark. And I noticed that all the doors had been taken off. And the reason why all the doors had been taken off is because that was how the state got around it not being seclusion. So there was a, there was a corridor that said, if you placed a child behind a locked door, that child was in seclusion. I know you know this. Why uh-huh, don't uh-huh. you place a child in seclusion? You've got to document it. Yeah. you got to say well, why I put the child there, what happened, and when did I let the child out? And so children ended up being in those rooms undocumented for days at a time. The clinical director acknowledged that he kept children in those, in those days to his best memory as long as four days. So what that did to these kids was absolute terror. Mm-hmm. I mean, there—I I was a grown man. And not only was I a grown man, I was a lawyer. We were in federal courts. We we could call a federal judge if they were going to mess with us, and it scared the out of me. Mm-hmm. It was scary to be in there. Yeah. And the boy yeah. we're talking about was a boy named David. And I, I I keep up with David. And that's not the, that that's not the name, that I, that's not his na- the name, just in the book, but his name is David and he's fine with me using his name. And he had been there for days.
0: You share that initial when, and I, I apologize, but I, I just want to say that again, read the book, please read this book because you share that initial interaction and you so eloquently share, Andrew, how he was, he was. Terrified. It was like he was in. Even though there were no door, there were no doors downstairs in the basement. You you describe the cold, damp conditions. How horrible it was down there, and that he was just like basically, and and curled up on this mattress. That
1: there there, was there there was yeah there there was uh, there was a blanket and and uh, you know a, a, a waste paper basket. And that was it. And, you know, when we went to trial, none of this was disputed. None of this was disputed. Um, And in in the minds of folks who left those kids, you know, the folks that put a kid down there and then left that facility and went went back home to their family, that was okay. And I think part of it is about the facility itself. When you take kids and you separate them Or any people and you separate them you put them you wrap them in a facility and you you look at them differently and you think about them differently you're able to treat them differently in ways that you would you'd be appalled if your own children were ever treated that way and if you ever stumbled upon it outside the outside in a normalized setting Mm -hmm. because there's something about those settings in and of themselves that allow us as people to begin to treat other people in a way that is cruel and, and, and just ought never be. Yes. And and so, you know.
0: Yes. And again, you're sharing that just so, it just reinforces what so many people have, have shared on this podcast. Again, so many children, so many teens and young adults that have any type of brain-based diagnosis. So whether it be psychiatric, whether it be trauma, brain damage from prenatal alcohol or prenatal substance exposure, or any other type of neurodiversity, we need to stop normalizing the punitive nature of changing them because we can't change someone's brain. That's the way their brain is, or that's the way their body is. What we need to do and what you so beautifully share is, is we need to support. We, we can't just, like you said, take somebody out and put them somewhere else. And then, like you said, where these appalling, you know, experiences happen, we need to support as much as we can, where that individual, where that child, that teen will, will thrive and grow.
1: Yeah, so I, and I think it's wonderful. And I got to say, you know, I, I, I've I sued foster care departments. I've worked for foster care. Department. I've, I've actually been an employee. I've worked inside foster care departments. I actually have a lot of respect for people that work in foster care. I think they they, they try their very, very best. I think they're smart, hardworking people. Um, I think they genuinely care about their job. I think they're genuinely decent to people. I think the, the issue is is when you deal with systemic care, Yes. System. The one thing that system does not do well with, system does not do well with different. Yes. And the moment it confronts that, it is at a complete and utter loss.
0: Yes. And that it has, we're going down a big rabbit hole here, folks. I promise I'll get back to my questions. But Andrew, that has been expressed by so many educational professionals about differences about children, teens with any type of, you know, mental illness, brain-based diagnosis, systemic care and education does not deal well with those challenges. So uh, that saying that, oh my goodness, that it's like this revelation. Yes. Systemic care of any type of system, whether it be family services, whether it be mental health, whether it be educational. Systemic care does not do well with dealing with differences. Oh my goodness. To
1: go, through, go to nursing homes. Yes. They can go all the way through every stage of life. It does yes. not do well with that. It just yes. It, it, and so I really I really do try to get away. I've met a few people that I didn't particularly care for in working with foster care systems and thought, you know, maybe there was another line of work you could have gone into, you know. <laughs> You thought of sales or something, but but what I'd say is, you know, I it is very very rare that I've met someone who I genuinely think you are not a good person. You you are actually bad to be here, and and that is a real real rarity. Now I will say, the facility that we're talking about in in Alabama, yeah, I met some folks like that for the first time, and those were very scary folks. But I want to say also that on both sides of these of, of, of this, there's there's very little actual evil. We, we we like to talk about evil. Um we like to see the big headlines, but the truth of it is is it's 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 much more intimate and it's much more loving than that. And when we if we get away from those kinds of big labels and look toward individual needs, we do a whole whole lot better. Yes. Yes.
0: Oh my goodness. Oh boy, I am just gonna I think I'm just gonna have I'm just gonna thank you after every question, oh, <laughs> Andrew, because you you, your statements are reflecting of what so many of our previous guests have shared, you know, and and again, how much work you've done in foster care and adoption really just makes me thankful as a parent. I want to talk about something and and we had this kind of email exchange about this. We know that getting back to foster care, you know, we're we're getting talking about foster care and foster care adoption. We know that there are a disproportionate number of children and teens in foster care with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders with FASD as well as prenatal substance exposure. I participated in the MAPS class. I have friends who have, and in that training, there was no mention of FASD, of prenatal substance exposure. No mention. And and I didn't do this training that long ago. I'm not talking decades and decades ago. I mean, and and, and keeping up with other friends who are still active foster parents who, you know, still, if they have to get renewal or credits or whatever, they say, no, there's still no mention. There's still very, very little FASD, prenatal substance exposure. How can the child thinking about your tremendous work in child welfare? how can the child welfare system move to start getting this what what you and I, I think what we're kind of uh, hinting at is this paradigm shift. We need this paradigm shift of education and awareness and support so that, again, we we move away from the punitive and think about, in terms of difference, brain difference, body difference. How can we start that paradigm shift? So thinking about lovely listener out there who is just this individual who just really wants to make a difference. How can we start that so that we can get this ripple effect going like so many initiatives that you've done?
1: Well, you know, when you're talking about, you may have seen there's a little smile on my face. And the reason why there's that little smile is, you know, I, I can count easily on one hand the number of times of the hundreds of cases that I've read, courtroom hearings that I've, that I've attended in the child welfare system, on one hand, where FASD is no problem. It is as if it didn't exist.
0: Yeah, we and- know this research has shown polar opposite.
1: And the number of conferences, and you look down those seminar lists and Mm -hmm. and all those opportunities, nothing. Nothing. And so I I think there's some basic education that has to happen. And you know, and, and there are so many areas that you can do. I think purely in terms of education, you know, one of my my areas that is really I think is so critical and really gets overlooked are judges. Yes. And I think folks forget. Folks don't know that it's not your foster care department that goes ahead and says, I'm gonna take this kid and I'm gonna hold on to this kid, and that's my decision alone. That's not what happens. It's a court that makes that decision. That, that child, when I was a little boy and I was taken from my mom, week, week, week and a half, two weeks later, I appeared as a six year old boy standing in front of a courtroom in front of a judge and that was needed because the state had taken and judges are what oversee the detention of children the taking of children from their families they oversee movements of children from placement to placement they oversee services they can call in social workers, they can call in teachers in most jurisdictions. And so one of the real blind spots are simply how well are these judges making decisions? And you see this in fetal alcohol syndrome, you see this in the issues of psychotropic and, and, and (laughs) excuse me, psychotropic medications, you see this in placement decisions. So you really, really need to do that. And I think you need to do that with foster parents and certainly with social workers. But the the other thing that I think is really is missing from this is an engagement with a family, and so to to move away from this adversarial relationship, and that's going to be very very hard right? um, between a family and your foster care department. I, I I have yet to hear of a single example where someone knocks on their neighbor's door and says, hey, you know, I saw you having a little bit of trouble with your kids. So I went ahead and I called the foster care department. They'll be by tomorrow. I have yet to hear any of them say, oh, thank you. Thank you. And, and that, I say that as a joke, but the point is there is an inbuilt fear and, and reservation and mistrust of these systems. And you know what? It's deserved. It's deserved. It's deserved. And so, until you have that, you, you're not going to be able to sit down with mom and say, "Let's talk about what it was like when you were having your baby." Let's talk about prenatal care. Let's talk about you, 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 you're, you're going to have a baby now. Let's talk about what kind of care you're getting. Do you know the impact of alcohol? Do you know what that does? Do you know that 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 compare, you know, that that it's irreversible? I mean, the one thing that is just astounding to me is that when you talk about FASD, how few folks don't realize the incredible danger that this poses. That you know, you can look at crack, you can look at meth, you can look at other drugs, and you know what? Those kids, those kids, they'll catch up. Yes. They. I'm sorry, but with with alcohol exposure, it's there. And it's not going to go away. Yes. Now, the yes. one thing I got to say after saying this, and this is so important, is that does not mean that we, when we look at a child that has FASD, that that child's life is over, that that child isn't a caring, loving child, that there are wonderful, wonderful things that that child can do and will do for us. Thank you. That, that's another strain that, that ends up where we where what we end up with is just pathologies.
0: Again, yes. And or vilifying vilifying what people think are behaviors but are actually symptoms again getting back to that whole punitive nature of you know you're you're punishing the the <laughs> you're punishing the disability you're punishing you're disciplining the disability you know getting away this from this, this,
1: this toxic toxicity of judgments. Yes, and that's something that unfortunately child welfare systems do very, very well. And we could spend a, we could spend hours to you know there are systemic reasons why it does that. There are funding reasons why it does that. There are cultural reasons why it does that. Yes, and that's something that we really, really need to work on. You know, um, yes. I didn't need to be judged the way, and that's a, a different issue. But one example, I didn't need to be judged the way I was judged because my mom has serious mental illness. And it didn't help as a little boy when I was eight years old to be called a nut, because that's what that's the same name that they called my mom. And so this kind of it goes back to that kind of um, that judgment and how toxic that is, how how long lasting that can be.
0: And something in the FASD community, which I know you can relate to with all the work and all the experience you have, we have so much stigma in the FASD community, and in foster care and adoption community, there is so much stigma. Again, like you said, that is just, should not be there. Again, what has happened, and and also in speaking with other guests who are clinicians who share about how the cycle of FASD is, you know, along with, you know, mental illness and other brain-based diagnoses is generational. So these are, these are things that are happening that have happened to, you know, to previous generations. So we know that again, we need to remove this stigma in the best way we can. And, And what you're saying is just, again, you're just hitting it right on the head we we need to get away from this this space of harsh judgment <laughs> vilifying you know birth parents vilifying bio parents vilifying family members and instead supporting lifting being their advocate when there's nobody else you know being their advocate i know that something amazing that you did andrew there are many amazing things you you've done but something that really has made an impact, and in fact, was is you know one of the reasons why we we celebrate and we acknowledge, we support, and we have awareness of adoption in November. Twenty two years ago, you co founded National Adoption Day. I'm thinking about this twenty you know back in two thousand, you co founded National Adoption Day. Let's talk about that and just what was behind that, what your plans were when when you co-founded National Adoption Day, and where we are now, and just what needs to change?
1: Well, National Adoption Day came out of a a local project that we worked on at the Alliance for Children's Rights, and really um, the the, the starting point of it was there were um, literally thousands of kids in foster care who were not going to be able to go home and for whom parental rights have been terminated. Um, They had had an adoptive family identified. Often they were living with that family. And their cases had simply been stuck. They remained in foster care simply because the paperwork hadn't been done. So literally these kids continued to be in this system because we weren't doing our job. And so what we did was uh, we recruited hundreds and hundreds of of attorneys, I've got to say, you know, and um, we taught them how to do adoptions. We sat down, I sat down with and some other advocates in, in Los Angeles, sat down with people in the Department of Children and Family Services and figured out where, where, where the knots were, where home studies weren't being done, why home studies weren't being done. Folks who don't know, home studies are things that have to be, reviews of the families that have to take place before um, a child can be adopted by a family. And it worked. And that, that, uh, that backlog slowly dwindled down. And so um, I took a, a, a staff member and we literally began flying around the country we'd show up in washington dc and we'd get an appointment usually with a you know a, a deputy's deputy within the department and, and maybe maybe a judge and we'd we would say you know um this, this is what we did in los angeles and we can help you do it here and it took a little bit of convincing but uh i think the first year maybe we we had three cities do it, and then the next year we said, okay, we're gonna do six, and then it got bigger, and 12, and finally, it became national. And uh, and so, you know, the, the work is not done. Um, we still need to do a lot of work in terms of, for example, ensuring that kids continue to have, su- have support once they've been adopted, ensuring that families understand that they're still, I'm just gonna put a plug in here, eligible for Medicaid, please take Medicaid. <laughs> please um to, to be able to provide them the, for the uh physical and mental needs of those of your kid of your child that you just adopted and um and then also I think we need to still remember that adoption isn't going to end trauma um and you know we, we can go all sorts of areas it's also not going to end the existence of the family the child came from and so it's hard as that can be to, 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 to work that through most of these adoptions are open now and so um, and I participated with a lot of reunifications in, in that sort of way where, where people you know young folks want to meet their their adoptive their, I'm sorry their, their biological family. and so there's I think it's done a lot of good because it's allowed kids um, to leave the system and it's allowed for kids to shed that label of being a foster child. And as much as we may not like to admit it, that is a label that I, I every every child is keenly aware that that is what they are. and it dominates their their not only how folks treat them, but their their own vision of themselves.
0: yes. and I think i'm I'm so impressed by how. The humble beginnings of National Adoption Day, how it started, and and just grew and grew, and and that to me is is an example of how listeners, how people out there in both in the FASD community and in the adoption foster communities, and and in, in in a greater scope, just starting with one kind of grassroots initiative, and just starting with that one thing, how it can grow and grow and grow and affect so many and can be part of that change that, that's that's needed. So I'm, I'm just, again, well, I'm going to give a just,
1: shout out to the, uh, to the, to the mergers and acquisitions attorneys and big fancy white shoe law firms. The last thing they ever want to do is go into court and are willing to go into court and step away from a merger and acquisition to get this done and to, to step up. So.
0: Absolutely, yes, Step up. Yes, absolutely. So, Andrew, just before we before we recorded this episode, I, I read your bio and just all of the amazing, impressive and and just kind initiatives that you have spearheaded. Let's talk about now. Let's talk about what's happening now. We're airing this in National Adoption Month. What initiatives, what organizations, What places do you want our listeners to be aware of to support? What is your passion project now in terms of what we're doing in not only the FASD community, but in the adoption and foster care communities?
1: Well, I'm I'm, I'm very proud to serve on the um, foster care review boards uh, of Arizona. And uh, those exist in multiple states. Those are uh, boards that review individual children's cases and make recommendations to the court and I want to encourage, you, if you'd like it, you go on. You can check it out and become a member. Another group that I'm very, very fond of are Port Queen Special Advocates. Those are CASAs, um, which do a tremendous amount of work. Um, CASAs, as I checked, there are nearly 1,000 chapters across the country. Uh, I forget the number of volunteers, but if I'm going to get it right, it might be around 20,000. It's a big number. And they make a real difference in a kid's life. Um, the thing that, you know, for example, about a CASA that is so different is uh, so many people who are involved in a kid's life when they're in foster care, they're there because they're being paid. And a child, you're here because it's your job. And CASAs are different. CASAs are there simply because they want, and And they, they make a real difference. And they get to know kids. They um, get to know parents sometimes, they get to know foster parents. You know, one of the things that, that, that we do very poorly at is, is when, a, um, when, a, when, when a foster family is actually struggling and identifying you know, what we can do to go ahead and, and keep that, that foster family on track, keep that, that foster family in a good place, keep that child in a good place and maintain that relationship and maintain that home. And you know, Casas do a lot of work around that as well. So, so they they really do it from beginning to end. They do it from you know newborns all the way up to kids who are, who are you know eighteen and about to enter into um, post eighteen services for kids. So, I really just a shout out and a wonderful group and very easy to get in contact. So, Court Carda special advocates. That'd be great.
0: And I know that there, I've. I've... In speaking with other FASD advocates, that there is a move to train CASA volunteers in FASD and, and brain-based diagnoses, you know, um, and also for example, like Guardian Atletum, the any of those um individuals who are doing it, like you said, because they want to and they want to support and advocate, not because you know, they they have to be there. So I know in our community, in the FASD community, that's something that we're we're trying to you know bring more education to those those individuals you know and those organizations that are supporting um those kids and and teens and and youth and in foster care
1: and the other thing i you know i i didn't say but it's to also and i know um, it, for a lot of folks I and mean, I, I i ran a a, a a an organization that recruited foster and adoptive parents and I know when you when when you sit down and you talk to folks, like, "Would you like to become a foster parent?" It seems pretty big. Um, take a look. Just take a look. Talk to someone who's a foster parent. I don't know if that's someone at your church, someone at work, um, so your synagogues. Someone, someone. Talk to them and see what it's like. And 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 thank God. Thank God. Okay. There's a, there, 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 there's a huge shortage of these kids, uh, I'm sure a huge shortage of foster parents. And what that means is, um, is kids that have you know, special needs often end up in the kind of institution you're talking because we simply don't have enough foster parents to go ahead and meet those needs. Yes.
0: Again, through your lived experience and through your professional experience, you've shared that um, there's so much to do that we're, we're, we're just, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, when we're, when we're talking about, when we're talking about foster care, when we're talking about supporting families, when we're talking about supporting kids with brain-based diagnoses, everything. Um, so what is the best way before we end on our, uh, our words of hope, our hope takeaways as, as I like to call them, um, Andrew, what is the best way someone can reach out to you if if they um, either have a question or just want to learn something more or, or want to be you know advocate? What's the best way that somebody can reach out or follow you?
1: Well, um, certainly you, 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 you can find me on Facebook <laughs> and you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, all the all those sorts of things. Um also uh, if you look at Hopesboy, H-O-P-E-S-B-O-Y, Hopesboy.com, there's there's a, a link there that'll send you know you get with a, my email there and uh, you know I reach out. I think we reached. Was it through LinkedIn or? Uh, I think
0: it was through, through LinkedIn actually. Yeah, I think we reached out. Th- I think initially it was LinkedIn.
1: <laughs> so either of those are any of those are, are, are great and and I really enjoy it. I mean it's 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 really wonderful to 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 either just chat with someone online or or, or have the wonderful experience doing something like this with you. Um, and, uh, it's a real honor and it it reminds me just of, um, of just the goodness out there. And, and I just really, it's, it's not a bother at all. And, um, it's something that I just really, really enjoy. So please, um, get in touch. I'd love to hear And
0: I will be putting those links, especially the link to um to Hope's Boy, um to that website too. I'll be listing those handles and those links in our program notes for today's episode, as well as on our social media posts this week. So be sure to look out for them. So I am again thankful, and this is fittingly in November, you know the the month that we give thanks. I'm I'm so thankful for you, Andrew, at the first sharing your story, sharing your journey the incredible work that you've done and that you continue to do in family services, child welfare, foster care, adoption. I am just on behalf of, you know, if I can humbly speak on behalf of of parents and, and caregivers out there, just thank you for the work that you have done and that you continue to do. I like to end on words of hope. What words of encouragement and hope can you share with listeners who are on this hard journey and just need to know, like like you've shared, um, need to know that there's still good in the world.
1: You know, um my grandma, um, my maternal grandma uh, um used to tell me when I was when I was a very little boy, she she used to just say uh, good things lie. And um, and I believe, you. and so um, I hope people that are watching, I hope you can trust that the good things lie ahead. Thank you.
0: And on those wonderful words of hope, Andrew Bridge of Hope's Boy, of all of these amazing initiatives of National Co-founder and National Adoption Day. Um, Thank you so much for being on FASD Hope.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Best to your family. Best to everyone. Thank you all so much.
0: Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Beckione. If you like our show and want more information, check out fasdhope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and review and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us again next week and remember to be informed Take care and always have hope.